Loom memory fragments. Warp time. Weft fairy. 972 years after the Cypher War. The sentence grew. The girl, tired from her long journey through twists and turns, confronted by phantasms and ancient puzzles, finally knelt before the Great Mother. Her hands gripped the lip of what she had thought was a giant black cauldron, but now she saw as she looked into its depths that it was an ancient well, the center of the labyrinth, the womb of the island. That meant that here, in this vortex of pure source, what is spoken becomes the echoes of creation, the juncture where past and future exist with the present. Slowly she lifted her gaze up to the Great Mother's face, faces, her mouth or mouth still opening, singing, breathing, birthing the sentence that had birthed her, until that was all there is, all that was heard. It filled up the girl, broke into her skin and code, vibrating into her core, flowing into time's web to echo through her life, shaping her for the island as one day she would grow up and shape the island for her. Screams ripped from her throat, desperate, terrified, filled with too much knowledge and too much power. And still the sentence grew like a scatter of seeds made of pure sigils, born of the first mind, weaving through the air to become numbers, codes, language, and a form. Golden robed with three faces hollow layered within the cowl of its hood. All femme beyond space-time, she opened her mouth, her mouths, to speak the sentence that birthed her. After the sky cracks open, comes the fall. Eighteen years later. Morgue felt it, gut deep and burning, when everything was about to turn to shit. Adrenaline rose, blast rocketing through her system to tense every muscle into combat-ready strike mode. Her surroundings took on a faint pulse in time with her heart, the metronome of which she paced herself in, knowing she could move ten times faster if needed between each laborious beat. The stone-black eyes in her scarlet-scarred face narrowed, and the jumbled, hissing mass of wire hair scattered a seed of sparks straight above her. The danger sense which the teachers with sight had always said was because of her rare red skin, had always served her in good stead. In fact, it was probably one of the main reasons why she'd gotten this far, risen this high to stand at the right hand of Sister Maeve the Merciless. She'd known every time where the enemy would strike and how, cutting them down before they could shout the order to attack or wet themselves as they stared into the craggy lines of her snarling face. However, this was not a raid. This was not a hardware-heavy, politically sensitive mission. This was not a smash-and-run ops masquerading's diplomacy. This was not even third watch training for the most fragged-out slum court and mirrored, known for attracting viri that could eat entire buildings. No, far from being anywhere near any kind of scenario remotely resembling a battle. 
morgue was right in the center of the jet and gold-domed palace during an official meeting of the Council of the Nine Sisters, tasked to stand statue still behind Sister Maeve and listen to admin babble while she napped with her eyes open. Morgue realized her sword was out and she was standing in front of Sister Maeve, her eyes scanning the obsidian circular chamber, each sister with her apprentice behind her, the reflections distorted in the dark glass. She forced the sound of her heartbeat away from her consciousness, letting her awareness of the other bodies in the room fill up her concentration, letting the danger sense run its course. Sister Gauze, who had been in mid-sentence about productivity levels and memorandum efficiency, closed her creased, dark green mouth. What do you think you're doing, apprentice? Morgue refused to flinch. Sister Gauze, who had not spoken, blinked. The icy tones that sounded as if it could shred an assembly line of armored troops came from behind Morgue. Sister Maeve, Morgue said in her most neutral, respectful tone. Something is coming. The island is breaking open. The council's mild confusion turned into the alertness of beggars caught digging through trash, limbs frozen and eyes furtively looking for exits. The sisters alone shared looks, lips pursed with knowledge. For a terrible nanosecond, instinct and uncertainty ground together inside Morgue, creating a sliver of doubt, but Sister Maeve's hand on Morgue's shoulder quelled it. If Morgue had been wrong, Sister Maeve would have struck her down with rapid pressure-point jabs instead of a gentle gesture of restraint. Sister Arho rose, a small figure compared to the tall warriors and stately bureaucrats. Dutifully, Apprentice Sekwa stood with her, large turquoise eyes attentive and alert. Sister Arho, this era's ruling council member, clutched her blue robe of frayed wires, her skin gray with age. She spoke sibilantly and softly, but with a trick of the chamber's acoustics, her words seemed to come right by one's ear. It's that time again, my sisters. Prepare yourselves. Prepare ourselves for what? Morg wanted to demand out loud, but long years training by Sister Maeve's side told her when to shut up and wait for answers. Instead, Morg followed the council out of the meeting chamber, unsheathing her sword when she caught Sister Maeve's glance. In the domed palace's lobby of glossy jet floors and cobalt torches, a yellow-skinned middle-aged lady with short-cropped orange-green hair approached the sisters, hands ringing. On her blue dress, the same color as Sister Arho's robe, was the seal of the palace senestral. Just open the doors, Anne, Sister Arho said firmly before the senestral could speak. What's going to happen is going to happen. We've survived this before. Let the nine sisters deal with this. Anne sighed and threw up her hands, then gestured sharply to some liveried providers in spotless blue uniforms milling about. They scrambled to pull open the heavy double doors as quickly as they could. Outside, chaos swarmed up against the leaders of Averona, the sound and sight of it clawing into their senses, hungry beast-like. The signs had begun to stream up above them, ribbons of light that flashed different colors marring the scarlet hue that told them it was day. From their elevated position, the sisters could see crones lining up in the streets of every district, in the marketplace and among the apple trees of the sacred orchard. Hoods thrown back, their lined faces staring upward, hum rumbling from deep within their aged bodies. Their eyes swirled like the color-besieged sky. The rest of the people ran, shouting, pointing upwards and yelling. Children and students flocked out of the ziggurats of progress and making. 
Those elders dressed in green or in brown desperately try to pick up crying toddlers or heard riding teenagers back into the buildings. The sisters were not watching this, for they knew it would end soon. It was the rent in the sky where the flickering gaudy rainbows converged, whor whirling ever faster that held their attention. It was a celestial maelstrom that crackled on the edges, as if a giant had torn out the heart of a thunderstorm and placed it in the center of a whirlpool of melted kingdoms. Hair writhing and spitting electric red fire, Morg waited by her leader's side, the pressure of her danger sense scraping against her skin. She could feel the island contort and spread open, desperate and eager as a starving Murden sex worker on her knees. Her fingers twitched as she resisted the urge to hold her sword in her two-fisted grip. She thought she was ready for anything, for the wild hunt, for an army of grey-cloaked bards, or even sorcerer X himself, come back from his mortal grave. Come on, you man-spawn bastard, Moore growled in her thoughts. Come on, I can take you. I'm ready. But she wasn't ready for this. Out of the vortex, like a speck of dust from an upturned cup, fell the last thing Morg was ever expecting. A girl. When the speck in the sky became flailing arms and legs, the people in the marketplace backed up, rapid and sure, until a rough, empty circle was made, revealing the cobbled stones of marble black. Soon a femid form could be discerned with curly violet hair and knee-high black boots. In her wake was a sound, a hoarse shrieking of one word, raked in the air over and over. Shit, 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 shit! The impact cratered the street and sent a shower of black rock whiz flying in every direction. The cacophony was deafening and islanders ducked for cover, diving underneath stalls or behind booths. When the dust cleared, the sky had rebooted back to red and the hole was gone. People were coughing, buzzing, and loudly complaining. From the center of the crater, a frumpy, brown-skinned creature, breasts tucked into a tattered black velvet vest and wide hips hidden by low-slung, faded black jeans, was dusting herself off, grumbling and cursing. She ignored the wide-eyed stares and scowls of market folk. Instead, she turned to the nine sisters of Averona, coming down the golden steps to stand before her, with apprentices in their wake. Sister Carrot and Apprentice Creer were the first to introduce themselves, saying warm words of welcome. The head matron, Sister Rhee, and her apprentice Aob followed them. When Sister Maeve stepped forward, and to Mork's surprise, did the full flourish of her military salute, the girl with an impatient toss of her purple locks raised a hand to stop Sister Maeve from speaking. Look, can we just skip all the bloody blonde shit? I mean, there's like, what, 16 of you? I'm sure everyone's an important special silicon ship in the grand processing unit that is this pretty little island of yours. But seriously, I'm fucking hungry. What you gotta eat around here? Sister Maeve had enough time to blink in astonishment before Morg's sword was out and pressed into the stranger's soft brown throat. You disrespectful half-breed child, Morg hissed. Do you know who you're talking to? The girl completely ignored both Morg's question and threat. Ooh, nice bastard sword. She ran a finger down its length and stared up at Morg with a cocky grin. Almost as pretty as its owner. Morg started back in confusion. What? Pity you're so analog, though. You could have made a decent warrior without all this half-breed anti-human bigotry. Fuck you! 
Morgue snarled, jabbing her blade forward. Another unpleasant surprise. The girl had dodged out of the way faster than Morgue had anticipated. Hey, is this how you treat every guest? Worst service ever. Sister Maeve's cool tone, strained by irritation, cut through the air. Morg, put down your sword. No, the scarlet-skinned warrior. No, the scarlet-skinned warrior pointed her blade once again at that smirking, chubby, fresh face. My honor and that of the Nine Sisters has been insulted by this, this outsider. I demand blood payment. I formally challenge you to a duel. Meet me here tomorrow at the first red ray of dawn. The girl burst out laughing, and all of Morg's willpower was burned up in the effort not to slash at the stranger's face. Okay, I can totally take you, but whatever. If this is what you want, I accept your challenge. It was Morg's turn to laugh, revealing jagged black fangs as she peeled back her lips in a smile. You, little girl, can take me. I have passed countless tests, fought hundreds of battles, and ripped open my enemies to piss on their entrails. I am Morg, the right hand of Maeve the Merciless, head of the warriors of Averona. Who the fuck are you? Oh, um, little old me? Didn't anyone tell you? The violet-haired half-human moved past the sword and leaned in close, her dark brown eyes staring into Morg's obsidian ones. I'm the loom. Morg's smile fell off her face. Are you out of your fucking mind? Kate glared down at Morg, waiting for any kind of explanation, but the crimson-colored fighter had nothing but an exasperated grunt for a blade mate. It was late into the evening, and Morg had been sitting on the bottom steps of the palace, replaying the day's events in her mind as she stared at the crater disfiguring the pattern of the marketplace stones. She had heard Kate's approach before she saw her, the whip-thin warrior clad in the black armor of their guild. Kate was good at stealth. She wasn't a frontline fighter like Morg, but Morg's ears were better. Now her old friend from the barracks stood over her, Kate's brass skin gleaming in the light of her torch, while her short black-blue curls were barely discernible in the dark. This is the Shadow Eater we're talking about, right? The weapon against the dusk, the fair's last hope. I mean, you've always been ambitious, Morg, but going up against the Weaver, you're frag-fucked, just fucked. Thanks for your vote of confidence, Morg snapped. Ah, don't be like that. Kate sat down beside her, wedging her torch into the crack between the cobbled stones. I mean, you're good and everything, but what if you get owned? Sister Maeve's so pissed right now, she's got no candidates for successor other than you. Bryn killed a dozen marks when we were ambushed during the last mission. Bryn? Her technique's good, but she's got no sense of improv or shifting strategies. One of the marks would have gotten her after he threw dirt in her eyes if you hadn't split his skull open. Well, I guess it's up to you, Kate. Don't even joke about that. I'm good at strategy, yes, and I'm quick on my feet, but I'm no leader. The Warrior Guild needs you. Sister Maeve needs you. Averona needs you. Just back out of the stool and... Morg stood, resolute. 
back out of a duel? You're the one who's out of your fucking mind. I'm not backing out of a duel, Kate. You know me. I'm going to see this through, loom or no loom. I am a warrior of Averona, and my honor must be respected. Kate got up, shaking her head. See, leadership material right here. Then to the surprise of them both, Kate pulled Morgue into a tight, fierce hug. I don't care if she's all we have against the shadow. Kick her ass, Morgue. We've got many more battles to fight together. Don't worry, old friend. I'm going to give her a fight she will never forget. After the sky cracks open. Unfortunately for Morg, the weaver was not in the habit of remembering any of her battles very well. It may have something to do with blunthead trauma. Yet the island of Averona did not forget. The story of that battle became engraved into the collective memory, morphing into a legend that would live for years and years afterward. The guilds of artisans, providers, and wearmakers meticulously recorded via work orders the extent of the damage the island's infrastructure sustained. Three marketplace stalls were irreversibly destroyed, along with their products of hats, fruits, and musical instruments. A hole was made in the west wing of the ziggurat of making, smashing seven desks and disrupting a class of students. A section of the wall in the east wing of the ziggurat of progress was severely weakened. Five trees were hit in the orchard, resulting in the loss of 30 data apps. The doors and some of the walls in two houses in the bureaucrat district and four and the provider district were broken through, and the ceiling of the domed palace caved in. The Battle of Red versus Violet became a barracks favorite for warriors in training, with embellishments that described Morg's sword as ten feet long and the loom's thread as millions of crystal ribbons sharper than a blade. The more seasoned warriors of the guild used the BRV for close combat sims, specifically to teach Weaver's initiative and the morgue's fall maneuver, notably the beginning and end battle moves. Warrior's Initiative Red Warrior is standing in the marketplace crater during pre-dawn darkness, completely still with senses alert. Violet Warrior approaches, walking at a steady pace, timed until the sky shows its first sliver of crimson day. At that point, Violent reaches red and, without preamble or observing the habit of declaring the start of the duel, punches red hard across the face. The lesson? Weaver takes initiative by knowing what are the formal rules and what are habits. Red failed by assuming that Violet would respect an informal custom, a respect Violet has not shown any inkling of having in the past. The morgue's fall maneuver only to be used when an opponent or a group of opponents has pinned your arms and legs, but your body's either near a sharp drop or is on some kind of roof. In the original case, after long chase scenes and being thrown into buildings and trees, Morgan the Weaver ended up on top of the domed palace. The thread out of the Weaver's back had finally ensnared Morg's limbs, and the sheer force of keeping Morg pinned had pushed the Weaver slightly off the ground and elevated. Note. The maneuver is only taught to advanced warriors who can control their muscles the way Morg did, by straining forward extremely hard against the captors and then suddenly reversing all that force backwards. In Morg's case, the combined strength of warrior and weaver caused the dome palace to cave in. 
In the freefall, Morg flipped the weaver underneath her and crushed the weaver in the impact. The Healer Guild documented, with sheer horror, that the fall alone should have killed both Morg and the loom, but years of training for them both allowed them to survive. Heated debates and detailed papers are still being written on what exactly gave the two such resilience, whether it was their brutal and daily physical exercise, Morg's ascetic diet, or the amount of cream whiskey the weaver ingested pre-battle, coupled with her blatant disregard for armor and underwear. These lessons were completely ignored by the bureaucrats, teachers, and matrons. The main lesson they imparted to children, students, and wayward individuals was the sentencing the Council of Nine Sisters gave when they came upon the bloody and half-dead bodies of Morg and the Weaver amongst the rubble that was once their inner chamber and meeting room. Sister Maeve and Mab found that neither of the two warriors could move nor speak, thus both losing the duel. Sister Gauze, with Sister Arho's approval, declared that Morg and the Weaver had dishonored themselves and all of the fair folk. Their penance would be nine months' worth of work for each of the guilds of Averona, most of which would be repairing the damage they had done to the island. The lesson, dueling doesn't solve problems. It creates more problems which then need to be resolved through hard work. Or, more succinctly, duels are for fools. The Artist Guild, however, had never been much concerned with the BRV. The storytellers of Averona, along with the singers and the painters, loved to depict and describe the nine-month penance more than the battle itself. The penance, for them, was where the real story began, where the violent and the red would enter a dance far more dangerous than one with swords and fists. Comes the fall. Morg let out a string of curses through gritted teeth, sweat rolling down the sharp angles of her face as she heaved a block of black stone upon a thick square wooden plank. She picked up some of the coils of rope lying underneath and beside it, securing the rock to the board and the pulley system. Several paces away, Nev, a short, stocky worker in overalls of artisan violet, began pulling on her length of rope her considerable muscles bulging as she hauled. Morg watched the stone and wood slowly rise in the air, accompanied by the muffled, oiled slither of rope on metal. Other workers and similar overalls lined up behind Nev, matching her pace as they yanked on the cord so the climb went faster and smoother. Still swearing, Morg turned away from the sight, her claws flexing with impotent rage twitches. The manual labor, lacking in whispered sigil codes and other sourcing, was not the origin of her ire. Very few worlds and societies within the fair remembered what it was like to move energy with one's own forms. The logic of most was that the energy was compiled by wares, so just skip the step and have the wares compile the energy into the desired complex configs. Morg, like many of her Averonian kin, found such thought lazy. The artisan craft existed to distinguish the difference between form and wear, between the maker and the maid. As such, she enjoyed the perspiration that building and configuring caused her, found pleasure in the workout, the easy teamwork and gruff camaraderie of this crew of artisan builders. It was the fucking time. 
that was part of it. Red beams fell through the gaping hole of the domed palace's roof, illuminating the dusty floor and reconstruction crew while the scaffolding and its occupants were in gloom. The brightness of the light indicated that it was mid-cycle. According to the schedule, by end cycle, the hole in the ceiling should be reduced by another 10% so that the dome would be fully repaired by week's end. Morg flicked her gaze back up to the dark stone block still hovering in the air, now closer to the scaffolding where two workers waited to attach it onto the rest of the ceiling. They were barely on schedule, the kind of nanospark difference in productivity that can be likened in Morg's mind to a single warrior out of step with a phalanx on the march. Her fists clenched involuntarily, her gaze sweeping down and around the ruins of the meeting chamber, picking out each violet-clad worker and reciting their names mentally to herself. Only one person was unaccounted for, the one person at the root of her fury. Where the fuck is the half-breed? Morg hissed. How many times do I have to tell you to stop calling me that? Morg instinctively whirled around and slashed forward with her claws. The fair's last hope stepped back from the swipe, almost a yawn stretch if it hadn't been so fast. She was dressed in charcoal gray shorts and a matching baggy sleeveless t-shirt. Adding insult to injury, she was barefoot. You're late, Morg roared, again. And what in the Nine Sisters are you wearing? You think you're going to get any work done in that? I told you, my name is Shalot. The weapon against the dusk said calmly. I don't call you apprentice all the time, do I? I bet that'd piss you off. Morg lunged at her again, slamming into a pillar of scaffolding as Shalot dodged. You're not even listening to me, you selfish, lazy shit. We've been working away trying to fix the palace for the past three weeks, and you show up late and barely do anything while making stringer-ass remarks the entire fucking time. Don't you even give a shit about your honor, about the honor of the fair? Morg, calm down. Shalot said firmly, hands raised in front of her in a placating gesture. This isn't warrior boot camp, you know. You need to... Don't tell me what to fucking do, Morg bellowed, throwing a wild punch that smashed into another column of wood. The sounds of consternation rising from the workers were drowned out by Morg's irate accusations. You think you're better than me, half-breed? You think your human taint makes you hot shit? No, Morg, that's not what I... Fuck you! The steady, quiet tone of Shalot's voice only enraged Mark further, and the berserker strength flowed through her limbs. She picked up a block of stone, grunting as her arms strained around its bulk. Morg, don't! As Morg threw the block, an ululation of battle wrested itself out of her throat. Too late, the red warrior saw the massive stone hit one of the load-bearing pillars. The column cracked under the impact, but did not break, though the entire scaffolding reeled. A shout from above had Morg look up just in time to see a stone block looped in rope slip from the worker's grasp, barreling towards where she stood. Morg hit the ground hard, shocked that none of her bones had broken in the fall. Yet when her eyes opened, she didn't see stone on top of her, but Shalot's body, painfully adjusting to a sitting position. Get the fuck off me, Morg groaned, shoving the weaver away. You're welcome, Stringer, Shalot snapped, scrambling to her feet in disgust. What did you just call me? Hey, where the fuck do you think you're going? Get back here! Shalot ignored the warrior, her violet curls obscured by the black wooden door slamming shut behind her. Morg was left with the wide-eyed stares of the artisans, all standing pressed up against the walls and far away from her. Only then did she notice all the damage wreaked and work undone. 
She had set them back another cycle, maybe two. This was, of course, the moment when Sister Epona showed up. Swathed in a robe of bright purple overlaid with aubergine patterns of basic wares, like screwdrivers and sewing needles. The robe complemented the magenta of her skin and the fall of dark blue locks, which nearly fell to the floor, the color of dried fair blood. Teal-haired apprentice Teffy stood at the sister's side, making a visible effort not to look as terrified as the workers that had brought them. What's the meaning of this? Sister Epona said briskly. She was the only one unfazed by the aura of fear the warrior emanated, her heavy gaze boring into Morg's skull. Morg clambered to her feet. My apologies, sister. I lost my temper. The weaver... Are you hurt? I heard you were nearly crushed. Should I send for a healer? No, sister. I was pushed out of the way. Sister Epona pursed her lips. How fortunate. Morg drew herself up, squared her shoulders. I need to lodge a formal complaint against the weaver. She endangered this crew and made me lose my temper. No one can make... You do anything, Apprentice Morg, the sister said archly. But she doesn't do bart shit around here. She comes in late every fucking day and... Have you asked her why? Sister Epona cut in sharply. Did you ever consider that the weaver has another job to do? Do you think the shadows stop their onslaught on the world's affair just because the weaver has penance to perform in Averona? Morg fell silent. She could not meet the sister's gaze. May Averona be praised, the sister continued, more softly. Today, two children and their mother were rescued from falling into the maw of the dusk. Whether they be fair or changing, whether of blue blood or red, I know that Averona looks upon them all equally with grace. I would hope every one of her people did the same, from artisan builders to so-called high-rank warriors." Abruptly, Sister Epona turned to leave, calling over her shoulder. Artisan Guild, work is done for the cycle. Go home to your families. I will see you all on the morrow. Figures slowly filed out into the bright red of day, except for one. She stood statue still, her face matching the sky's sheen, but her eyes more like the broken stone by her feet that she stared at, hard and unblinking. After the sky cracks open. The reconstruction of the dome was eventually completed, along with the repairs of the ziggurats and several residential houses. Work moved smoothly from the artisan guild to the orange-clad artists, where Sister Deard charged Morgue and Shalot to redecorate the palace roof and any other locations on the island that had suffered from their snow crash skirmish. Morgue had fallen into a strained silence around the weaver, punctuated by curt replies when questioned and perfunctory grunts in response to jokes, offhand comments, and streams of sometimes slurred rambling. Shalot did her best to be friendly, as she found the warrior's wall of uncomfortable near-quiet a welcome change from earlier verbal assaults and berserker violence. But it soon became apparent to the curious outsider that Morg's new behavior was symptomatic of the struggle between her sense of dishonor due to Shalot's maltreatment her sense of pride as a warrior. Entwined intricately throughout the warring factions was a thread that the weaver had yet to untangle, the seed that she suspected drove all these contradictions in the first place. 
The weaver was not particularly known for her patience, but in this case, she was in no rush. The penance had only begun. Her and Morg were not going anywhere. Still, it would turn out that Shalott did not have to wait for long. Weeks of steady work painting frescoes and carving ornamentation, which neither of them were particularly good at, ended with the relieved apprentice Viv and a group of artists leaving the pair at the edge of the island's legendary orchard. The warrior and the weaver stared out at rows and rows of golden, gleaming apple trees that sprang beyond the horizon. Makes you feel like a fucking child again, didn't it? Shalott marveled. Morg shrugged, something shifting in her onyx eyes for a single pulse beat before vanishing. Instead, a weathered, gentle voice that sounded as fragile as end-season leaves responded to Shalott's query. Every day, Loom, these trees bring youth into my old code and brighten up my form. The two turned, startled, to behold Sister Brig, pale blue and bald, and a hooded thin cloak that moved like liquid mirrors. Her eyes were black ovals, akin to morgues, except for a single golden circle in the center. Shalott got the impression of staring down twin abysmal wells to see the faint outline of an Averonian apple. Whoa, lady, you're sneaky, Shalott exclaimed. I mean, Morg's a first-class warrior who can probably ambush ten bards, and I can sneak up on her, but you got the drop on both of us. Now that's sneaky. Sister Brig blinked and cocked her head at the weaver's words. Before she could speak, though, a figure lithely dropped from a tree ten paces from them. Her coloring was the inverse of Morg's, jet-black skin that gleamed in the light of the red sky, and hair a forest of spear spikes that looked like they'd been dipped in the scarlet blood of humans. Her eyes, however, were slits of dirty chrome, heightened by the silver trousers and single swath of cloth that bound her chest. She returned Shalott's open leer with a baleful glare. Morg recognized her from the council meetings, always standing beside Sister Brig with a perpetual scowl that would have made a warrior proud. Are these the shitstringers who raped our trees, Sister Brig? snapped the newcomer, her hands balled into fists. Sister Brig pursed her lips at the younger wearmaker. Peace, apprentice Bellus. They come in penance. The great mother Averona would have us teach them the ways of tending. Violence is not always a suitable response to violence, as well they know already. We shall tend their ignorance until it blooms with knowledge and wisdom. Bellis did not look admonished, but she inclined her head respectfully towards her elder while crossing her arms in stubborn disapproval as she glowered at Morg and Shalott. We lost thirty apps. I don't even think you guys get what the frag that means to us. The Weremakers and Averona as a whole. Apps are the only thing that keeps us different from the horned and those bardasses. They can look like stringers up against a full-fledged wearmaker with a bundle of apps. How do you think all this bioware grows around here? Apps. How do the providers make food? Apps. What helps little ones learn and artists create and artisans craft? Apps. But I guess legendary warriors that call themselves the right hand and the loom can do whatever they want to us regular folk. Bellis. Sister Briggs' voice whip cracked in the air like a snapped back tree branch. What must we do for penance? Morg said calmly, contritely. She noticed that Shalott stayed blessedly silent, even if the weaver could not contain her half-bored smirk. You two will tend the trees, Bellis ground out through gritted teeth. It's supposed to teach you to love that which you'd thoughtlessly destroyed. 
Unlike sorcerers, we wearmakers don't have to start from scratch. Our great mother, in her wisdom, coded and prog the orchard to grow the apps as needed for the island to survive. Apps are extremely complex wares that can generate more wares, so we wearmakers make sure each tree is making the correct kind of app and that the app is in healthy condition. If there somehow got to be an infection, we have to separate that app from its tree and destroy it. Of course, you two should already know this, as most Averonian children learn this probably on their first day of the ziggurat of making. I'm not really from around here, Shalot said sheepishly, but I get the basic gist. You better, snapped Bellis. Now come on, I'll take you to the fiber row. Bellis turned and strode forward without a backwards glance while Sister Brig watched them go, smiling serenely. Moore gave a short bow and departure and Shalot cheerfully waved before they sped up to catch up with Bellis's lengthening strides. The section of Fiber Row that Bellis was taking them to lay deep in the orchard, sandwiched between Synth Row and Gem Row. Bellis briskly informed them that apps of fiber created the initial matter artisan's spin and thread into cloth, and that she chose this row as it was one of the least important of the apps, so if the two fucked up hardcore, the island's industry wouldn't grind to a panicked halt. She then took out some gadgets that she unfolded into a metal basket and shears. She handed a pruner each to Morgan Shalott. These are the kind of branches you need to snip and thin out. Helps the apps grow better. See this app? Got a mite in it. Pluck it and toss it in the basket. We incinerate them at one of the orchard cabins scattered throughout each section. You'll find one when your work's done. Bellis watched them closer than a high-level secure cam, walking around the trees they were working on, slapping their hands away if they tried to cut or prune the wrong twigs. After three fiber trees and an hour of branch thinning with the occasional apps plucking, she told them that she had to go supervise other parts of the orchard. Shalot counted three full minutes before Bellis vanished out of sight. The two were then left with golden trees in every direction, growing from black earth and shining yellow close-cropped grass. For like an hour stretched on without them speaking. It was probably half that time. Bellis is a bit of a firebrand, ain't she? Shalot opined. More grunted as she snapped off a twig and let it fall to the earth. This orchard is fucking huge, the weaver continued. I wonder how long this row goes. Never thought the island was this big. Hmm. Shalot quirked her mouth, then shrugged. Suit yourself, but if you want to talk about it, I can listen. The sky screamed and shook. Shalot's cutters fell to the ground as she clapped her hands to her ears. She stared up into the scarlet firmament and saw swirls of dark violet, like the deep bruises that appeared on her skin after a hard fight. A searing line of silicon blue flickered in the mass of inky black purple, almost blinding. The weaver opened her mouth to scream, What the fuck? But the sudden gales of wind that howled down the row stole her words, bowling her backwards onto her ass. Morg was there, leathery red hands grabbing Shalot by the forearm, hauling her up, yanking her into a run. Shalot gaped at the trees. They were perfect still. The leaves and branches and swollen, shimmering fruit seemed to tilt skyward, expectant, such hungry newborn babes for lightning-heavy teats. She tore her gaze away, looked to where Morg was leading them. In the distance, a black square, a hut of some kind, low to the ground and rough-hewn. Shalot picked up speed, and they raced towards the heavy wooden door. A blazing blue arc shot down from the sky, lit up a tree. It did not burn, just glowed like lapis lazuli, the apps blinking into sigil code for the sparest of nanos. Only when Morg's hand grabbed hers and pulled her inside the hut did Shalot realize she had been immobilized and gawking at the light show, 
the door slammed shut behind her, weaver and warrior tumbling to the ground while the sound of wind and thunder became muted. Heavy pattering followed, like tiny people drumming insistently on the roof. What a bitch, Morg muttered in the darkness. What? What the fuck just happened? More muttering and scraping in the shadows. Just when Shalott's night vision adjusted, there was a flare of yellow radiance that quickly became brighter. She stared into the square maw of what she could only assume was the Apps incinerator. Morg crouched beside it, still fiddling with its knobs. She could barely stand in the low-roofed shack. There was a threadbare couch, a couple of chairs, and a table. Shalott checked the cupboards and found jars of preserved food some provider long dead must have left behind. It's an energy storm. Morg finally responded to Shalott's question. It charges the orchard and the apps, gives them power. Apps can't ripen without them. Bellis knew it was coming and left us there. Shalott sprawled onto the couch, staring up at the craggy ceiling. What would have happened if we didn't get to shelter? Satisfied with the heat and light levels, Morg took a seat by the single heavy-paned window, staring out at the blurred landscape. Soaked by rain, bruised by the wind, tossing us about. Worst of all, could have been fried by blue lightning. Too much power like that makes you half mad if you survive it. Shit, well, thanks for pulling me to safety. Morg cleared her throat. Schlott took it as some kind of acknowledgement, as no other words or sounds were forthcoming. The weaver considered trying to start up more conversation, but the beat of the steady rain began to lull her into a half-trance. She thought about those golden apps yearning for the touch of scorching energy, resplendent and unmoved by the wind. The rain should be able to touch them, but maybe it moved right through, or around, as if ghost-like or shielded. Did you mean it? About listening? It took Shalott a few seconds to realize that Morg had spoken, but more importantly, spoken to her. The question was tentative, fragile, so unlike the warrior's regular tone that had almost got lost in the sounds of the storm. Yeah, a thunderclap followed Shell's response, giving time for Morg to reconsider. But they both knew the warrior had already made up her mind about it. When the blue lightning struck several paces from the shanty, bringing the room in sharper relief, Morg had begun to speak. Imagine... A young girl in a city like, like a mite-infested app. A spiraling city rotten to the fucking core and code. Trapped in one sector near the farthest reaches, the worst fucking shitholes. Imagine a girl being groomed for a future of just lying on her back and taking dicks in her holes so that one day she could pump out more of her kind. She tried to fight it, of course. She was fast, strong, smart secretly snuck away from the clumps of sleeping children or packed, droning study rooms to watch the squire boys fight and practice and train. She didn't want the life laid out for her, didn't want to be just a brood bitch. So she dared to cut lessons, to defy curfew and trespass into places she shouldn't. And in all respects, that squire boy should have told on her. He noticed her watching, but he didn't tell the others, stayed behind while they left and called her out. She stepped out of the shadows, trembling, thinking that she'd get the shit kicked out of her and then be picked up in a squad craft, and some terrible punishment awaited her. Maybe termination. But he threw a practice sword at her that she caught in both hands and told her to attack. And suddenly, all the rage in her heart grew and grew, and she charged at him, sure she could take him. But he easily knocked her on her ass and said, Anger only gets you so far. You have to fight with both your head and your heart. 
And so she said, show me. And he did. Morg lapsed back into quiet. Shalott turned on her side, curly head resting in one hand, to stare at the Red Warrior's profile. She saw the struggle in Morg's face, eyes lost, seeing two different people from different lots in life, bonding through sweat and earned skill. Moore grinned abruptly, jagged white teeth gleaming in a flash of blue. She got good, that brute girl. Soon the two were fighting with practiced metal swords, heavy but unsharpened. Still the metal sang in her hands. A sword dancer prodigy is what the squire boys whispered because the secret got out. Never got told on because they didn't want it known that a brood girl was better than most of them. Also, they respected the squire boy that had befriended her. He was their unspoken leader of sorts, and it was clear somehow, by the color of their hair or the way they both moved, that they were bloodkin. Sometimes it happened where bloodkin could find each other, despite how all the children are pumped out of brood bitches like fruit picked from a tree, sorted by need and social structure. But one squire boy hated the girl's half-brother and hated the brood girl even more. With a bunch of others he rounded up as his gang, he challenged her to a formal duel, even though he was bigger and older and could qualify as a knight in a few years. Stupid fucking stringer. She had to accept, and they fought one-on-one, -on -one, but he only knew how to fight with his anger, for his head and his heart weren't in sync. That's how she defeated him desperately but soundly so that he was humiliated in front of all of his friends. They thought that would be the end of it, but... Thunder drowned out what Morg said next, though she usually paused whenever it had happened before. When the peals died down, her voice was hoarse and monotone. Shalott found herself sitting up, staring at the floor, fingers digging into her thighs until she felt her skin tear, blood running down her legs and small purple rivulets. They came for her at night, seven of them, who knocked her out of her bed, dragged her out into a remote part of the sector, knowing when the squad crafts do their rounds they could avoid them. She woke up when they were tying her down, laughing all the while, told her brute girls aren't meant to be warriors, showed her what kind of sword she should be playing with instead. They tore into her, teen boys ripping open her cunt in her asshole with hands and dicks, pounding, biting, clawing at her skin inside and out. She refused to scream, though refused to cry, even when they were all done with her, the lead boy pissing on her bruised and bleeding naked body. She shed not a single fucking tear. Squadcraft found her there, alone and unconscious in the middle of the day. She woke up in a health office at the central processing unit, with a med telling her she'd heal up soon, that they needed to know who did this to her, and that she could return to lessons whenever she felt better girl gave her report to a knight who listened and shook his head after, said squire boys would never do that. Why would they attack her? Not unless she was doing something wrong, because squire boys upheld the law. The brood girl knew then how the sector worked, how the city worked. The city saw her as a mite, as an infestation, when in fact the entire city was the rot. The next day when the med came, the brood girl was not in her bed. They sent three squad crafts full of knights to bring her down. She'd gotten hold of a real sword and was tearing through the part of the factory where the squire boys were taught, slicing off heads and limbs indiscriminately. She was too fast and small for the knights to catch until she found herself face to face with her brother. He stood, unarmed, tears in his eyes. He wept for her, knowing she couldn't. She was frozen by the sight. He ran to her, wrapping his arms around her. It was he who screamed and fought when the knights pulled him apart. It took more of them to pile themselves on top of him and take him away, because all the fight had gone out of her, the sword falling to the ground. They were going to terminate her the next day. 
She didn't care. She wanted out of that fucking city. She was ready. But someone broke into her cell in the CPU, called themselves an Exion, said she needed to survive. It was part of the great program. Didn't know what the fuck he was talking about, but she followed the man back out into the remote parts of the sector to an old place where ancient doors could still be opened jacked her into a port that shouldn't be working and pulled her into a world she thought was only reserved for tech, bards, and execs. Cipher space. There was only the end mist first. The man hadn't gone with her, and she didn't know how to go back even if she wanted to. So she walked forward. She walked until she saw a woman in a curved, thin crescent bowl floating in the mist ahead of her. The woman was tall, with skin completely ink-black and eyes like the blue lightning outside. She wore black armor, had two long swords, and looked like living shadow. The woman asked the girl where she was from, and where she was going, and who she was. The girl said she was leaving a rotten city, and she didn't know where she was going, but she knew who she was. I'm a warrior, the girl declared. Metal sings in my hands, and I dance with swords, and there is nothing else I want to be until I die. The woman looked her up and down, and a slow smile crept over her lips. The girl noticed that the woman's mouth was filled with rows of sharp, black teeth. The girl realized she was probably staring at a fairy. The woman said, Come with me. I live on an island where there are no men and there is no rot. We take care of our own and let girls grow up and be whatever they want to be. Here you can be a warrior and dance with swords until you die. Yes, I want to live on that island, said the girl. Then you will need to come aboard the boat, and I will take you to the entrance of a cave where you must walk through a labyrinth. If you survive this test and come out on the other side, you will find many trees filled with golden apples. Choose one apple out of all of that and eat the fruit, and you will not be a changing anymore, but a fairy. The girl didn't know what a changing was, but she climbed on the boat and let the warrior take her to a mound of rock that rose out of the mist where a slit large enough for the tallest of frames could enter. The girl, barely twelve human years old, stood at the mouth of the cave in her ragged gray shift. The fair woman stared at the girl one last time, a creature of pink-brown skin and matted copper hair hanging down her amber eyes. Then the girl walked into the labyrinth. As the last words died away, Shalott realized with a start that crimson light was streaming through the window, shining on Morg. The sound of pendulous rain and gusty winds had vanished, the thunder a distant memory. Morg still sat on the chair, facing the window, her profile as striking as ever, even wearing torn black overalls instead of armor. Something about the stillness and all the buried history carved into the very presence Morg exuded left sharp pangs in Shalott's chest. She found herself standing outside of the hut, stretching her limbs and leaning her back up against the rough wall. Morg came out to join her. Was the story too hard to take? The Red Warrior asked, not making eye contact. Too hard to understand. Shalott shook her head, raking a hand through disheveled violet locks. It's just that the story's unfinished. I'm worried about the changing girl. I'm worried that she died in the labyrinth and so she'll never get to face what happened, to finish the past and then finally know where she's heading. I'm worried she became a ghost trapped in new skin, haunting the heart and clouding the head. As soon as the words left her lips, Morg slammed Shalott against the shack suddenly and furiously, so that her whiteless dark eyes were looking down into the weaver's startled brown ones. The red opened her mouth into a grimace of teeth, ready to scream or snarl or rip out the violet's jugular. Shalott looked up at her calmly. 
Anger will only get you so far. Rage, shock, despair, longing. The emotions chased each other in a rapid ring around across Morg's face. Her hold on Shalot's shoulders tightened, and the weaver closed her eyes, ready for the brunt of the warrior's fury. But no attack came. Only the slightest graze of mouth and fangs and tongue over her lips. And then the pressure of Morg's body and grip was gone. When Shalot opened her eyes, an army of golden trees greeted her. She licked her lips thoughtfully, fingers running over her mouth. There was the taste of salt on her tongue, of proud and angry tears that weren't her own. Comes the fall. For another opening, the weaver would have to wait till Morg was near water once more. The two finished tending the orchard after a few weeks. Morg didn't lose her temper again, but neither did she start up conversations on her own. Shalott was left to initiate all interaction, and, though awkward at first, Morg eventually could carry discussion forward. Neither of them talked about what happened during the energy storm, nor after. More weeks passed by them, at first filled with providers in blue uniforms, teaching them how to use the golden apps for making food as well as learning what people needed and how to serve them. Scarlet-suited bureaucrats pushed them to conversing in earnest as the monotony of filing, sorting, and making forms at little wooden desks took their toll. But none of their earlier work doing penance prepared them for the children. Soiled linen to be changed, cribs to be rocked, stubborn mouths to be fed— and the feeling of sudden elation when petulant screaming became tentative giggles. All of this gave Shalott and Morg a newfound respect for the brown-cloaked matrons who did their job with a serene grace or pragmatic vigor. The process continued with the teachers swathed in green who taught the two how to discipline students and facilitate learning. Despite neither of them being the most socially apt, they found themselves making bonds with the students, mentoring them. Still, Shalott was relieved the first day that she walked into a health center and was greeted by a pleasantly smiling lady wearing a white smock and holding a clipboard. Morg and Shalott were warriors, and though they found the penance so far an eye-opening experience, it wore on them that they could not be doing the things they loved best. The healers and warriors, to the other guilds of Averona, seemed exact opposites, but warriors knew that healers dealt with the razor-thin edge between life and death the same as a fighter did. The only difference was tactics and opponents. The healer with the clipboard introduced herself to Shalott as Apprentice Elaine, since her and Morg were already acquainted. Morg was impressed with her poise when Shalott excitedly asked Elaine if they could start sewing bloody people back up and shit, and the healer simply shook her head, still smiling beneficently. Before you can understand how to care for others and help them achieve the balance that we call health, explained Elaine, you must learn to care for yourselves. Elaine led the two deeper into Averona's healer district, where an alabaster-domed building sparkled pink from the sky's light. Shao found the healer's temple jarring, as most of the buildings on the island were created out of the black stone of the earth and the golden wood of the apsless trees. She figured the entire construction must be made from wares. The suspicion was confirmed when Elaine escorted them inside and a wave of unnatural humid heat hit them. Through the glass doors of the front lobby, Shalott could see a long, oval pool, deep enough for people to sit in. There was a hallway at the other end of the pool, where special private chambers were reserved for specific needs. 
Elaine left Shalott and Morg in one of these rooms, the stone a web of grey-veined marble to distinguish it as the warrior's soak. Wait, apprentice Elaine, Morg called out as the healer turned to leave. I'm not sure I understand what we're supposed to be doing here. Elaine raised her eyebrows as she looked over her shoulder. Well, apprentice Morg, it's rather simple. You take off your clothes and you soak in the pool of hot water and you relax for as long as you need to. That's all for this cycle. When the healer had gone, Shalott and Morg stared at each other, neither moved to undress nor step nearer to the pool. Well, Shal muttered with her usual flippancy, this is fucking unexpected. Morg surveyed the room. The walls were a dark brown werewood, as was the ceiling, giving her an impression that they were in a tightly sealed box. The entire floor seemed to be carved from one giant block of marble, the circular hole in the center big enough to fit six people sitting. The water was so hot that trails of moisture lined every surface of the chamber like beads of sweat. Fuck it, Shalott mumbled and noisily splashed into the pool. Part-ass stringer shit, it burns. Morg stared at Shalott incredulously. The weaver had submerged herself up to her waist and was slowly trying to sit down on the ledge at the rim of the pool. The ragged shorts and t-shirt Shal wore ballooned in the water. What? Shal grumbled. Morg shrugged. She snarled a red-clawed finger around one of the long, thick black wires of her hair, yanking it free with a sharp tug. With a whispered sigil code, she pulled at the hair until it stretched. With one hand, she gathered up the rest of the hissing, sizzling mass of her snaky locks and piled it at the very top of her head, using the morphed hair to tie it all in place. Then she unsnapped the buckles on the straps of her overalls and pulled them down until the fabric pooled at her boots. Shalott glimpsed a web of ridge-like scars crisscrossing her body, of full crimson breasts and maroon aureoles, of a dark thatch of triangular hair. She looked away, only listening to Morg slip out of her sturdy black boots and slide soundlessly into the water. The soft sigh from across the pool made the weaver's hair at the back of her neck stand on end, but it was the bark of abrupt, uninhibited laughter that jerked her spine, her eyes shooting back at Morg's face, glaring. What's so fucking funny? Really? Morg snorted. You have to ask. You're sitting fully clothed in a hot pool, barely able to make eye contact like it's your first day at the ziggurat, and you were bumped up a few levels. At Shalott's confused look, Morg sighed and flicked water at her. You look scared, Stringer. What you so afraid of? Hey! The weaver splashed a full bowl of water in Morg's face with her cupped hands. I think I've already proven I'm not scared of you, Big Bad Red. In moments, Morg was across the pool, fingers hooked into the collar of Shalott's shirt. The momentum of the warrior's pull made the shirt front rip in two, and Shalott stumbled forward, falling against a Morg. Shalott's tender nipples, as dark as the werewood of the walls, pressed against the hardness of Morg's. They were kneeling at the center of the pool, red hands digging into the wet rags plastered on Shalott's back, keeping her steady. You're the one still fully clothed, Morg breathed in the weaver's ear. I say again, what you're so afraid of. Shalott's heart was beating too fast. She felt like she couldn't get enough air. It was hard to think with Morg's pointed teeth so close to her earlobe. She could almost feel the sharpness grazing the tender membrane. Her face was partly pressed against a scarlet shoulder. The thick scars stood out vividly like staring down at a topo map of roads and rivers, 
All the while, the smell of sweat and burned metal filled her nostrils. The... the water... Shell managed to rasp out. You're scared of water? No, the water... it changes you. Morg was not making any motions of pulling away or letting go, and Shell's body began to soften in the warmth of the water, and of the warrior's body, relaxing into the embrace. There's no real water in Camelot, you know, Morg whispered. Her voice sounded far away as if she was already going offline. Out in the meat world, it's dry as fuck out there, dry and hard and sharp, always struggling to survive in an order that seems just like more madness. Sure, they have showers, timed little falling streams you have to use quickly, unless you're some fancy-ass exec. But the first time I saw water and fair, I felt truly alive. It's like the world outside of fair already died, and humans are just maggots trying to carve a living on the dried shit and dusty bones of what's left. I wouldn't know. I've never been, Shalot murmured. This revelation shocked Morg into a moment of silence. Shell's hands moved of their own accord, trailing out of the water to slide up Morg's back until she was gripping her shoulder blades. But, but you're not fairy. Your skin looks human. Your eyes. I am fairy, Shell said against Morg's skin, her tongue flicking the ropes of scars, eliciting a strangled moan from the warrior's throat. I am human. I'm the loom. Show me. Morg pulled Shalot's face up towards her, a kiss driving into her mouth that was far from the fragile graze made at the orchard. This was fierce, devouring, penetrating, accompanied by a frenzy of raking fingers and writhing hips. Oh, shit, you feel so good, sighed Shalot. She'd fallen backwards, leaning against the rim and ledge of the pool, her clothes floating in tatters at the other side of the water. Morg pulled Shell's legs around her waist, a red hand pressed against the curly mound of dusky violet hair between the weaver's brown thighs. Shalot dug her nails into Morg's back, while her other hand squirmed against the fleshy, slippery ruby she found nestled and erect in the warrior's nether lips. A guttural scream of grating pleasure tore itself through Shalot's teeth as Morg's fingers plunged into her, their bodies beginning to pulse. Streams of purple light raced and collided underneath Shalot's skin, while Morg's flesh looked like it housed a roiling mass of fire snakes. The two glowed ever brighter as their bodies and hands pressed and undulated, the pace increasing with the volume of Shalot's moans, until the chamber flared with a magenta supernova, the walls witnessing the birth and death of a tiny red-violet star. The burst of source short-circuited the ambient light from the ceiling, plunging the pair into a womb-like darkness entwined in each other's limbs. Shao's face was snuggled in between Morg's breasts, the warrior's pointy chin resting lightly on wet violet curls. Penance is almost over, Shalot murmured. In five weeks you'll go back to being a warrior and I'll go back to being the weaver. Morg grunted softly, her clawed fingers idly stroking Shalot's back. No, I've been thinking ever since the orchard. No, I can't just go back. When this is all done, I have to find him. I have to talk to him. The weaver craned her neck up, pulling away slightly to stare at the murky outlines of Morg's face through her night vision. Your half-brother? Yes. I need to face this. All this past. I need to know where I'm heading. Shifting in the water, Morg moved her body so that their foreheads touched, her battered scarlet hands cupping the weaver's cheeks. Shalot. 
Will you help me? Something opened up within her, pressed up against Morg's form. The weaver's face split into an uncontrollable, elated grin. This was the first time Morg had ever called her by name. The violet kissed the red heart on the mouth, saying the words that would set about a future engulfed in war and pain. Of course. After the sky cracks open. The problem was the race code. Shalot had plenty of experiences sneaking people into the Central Court Palace, mostly for co-bragging rights among the green punks for the how-many-places-in-the-barred-palace-have-you-fucked-in game that had been popular since the time of Mird himself. The guards were easy to bypass with a flash of creds in the hand, a knowing wink, and the added benefit of being the loom to sweeten the look-away factor. Additionally, dressing Morg up like a local tart was a relatively simple process that involved less skin-covering armor and more lusty groping what Shal deemed the fun part. The hard part was the wallfire ward set up around the palace proper. It operated based on race codes embedded in the ids of whoever entered, setting traps and containment fields around anything that didn't read Bard or Camion. I could disable the wards, Shalot mused to herself as she sat naked in the darkness of her tower bedroom, lit only by the azure light of her boxen. But the delegation's leaving tomorrow. Two string are tight for time to recruit more personnel to do an inside disarm job. Ugh, I wish Morg had found out sooner where her brother was at. I can't believe you only have this end cycle to get to him. Her computer made a sound of disapproval, a kind of grating beep that set the weaver's teeth on edge. My lady, I must continue to insist that this endeavor is utterly irresponsible and outside of your jurisdiction. Not that these kinds of entreaties to your sense of reason has ever worked before, but this morgue character, someone who attacked you and challenged you to a duel upon sight, seems completely untrust. I know, Blue, Shalot exclaimed. Totally hot, right? I love Femmes, that duel. Fucking dreamy. You're not even listening. <sighs> Sighed Blue. Her questionable character aside, consider the impossibility of the task, if not its utterly unethical nature. She claims her half-brother is part of this Camian delegation, correct? The ambassador and his entourage will have a high security detail, with the wallfire wards even more complex to dismantle. You would need a cascade of sorcerers, neutralizing all the systems simultaneously within a small time frame before the guards or bards would notice. You might as well try to change your complete race coat to Mirrodin for all the good that would... Shalat jumped up with a gasp, spilling a plate of rice and beans off her lap. The walls of her chamber whirred and creaked, panels sliding open and mechanical arms extending out from the umbra to collect the fallen dish with minute precision. Are you well? Was the food not compiled correctly? Blue asked frantically. No, no, Blue, you lovely box, that's it. Change her race code or convert it back to Camion. As much as I enjoy your compliments, I will have to dampen your spirits by professing that what you intend to do is unfeasible. Averonian apps are the finest and fair, and to permanently undo all of that programming... Shalot grinned as she picked a fried bean off the floor, munching on it with a smirk. That's the thing, Blue. It's not going to be permanent. And I know just the punk progger with the spark to do it. 
Before Blue could groan wine protest, Shell had jacked herself through, porting Red into a green common room by slamming through the encrypts with a scream of sigil code that almost sliced the password prog in pieces. The chat room slash bar writhed with its motley of regulars, fair folk with gender blank ids or avant-garde Ava that recognized the weaver instantly upon arrival. A fair made entirely of floating old-school silicon chips, or at least a reconstruction pre-swordstone pact of what chipware would have looked like, waved a tendril of bobbing circuitry in Shal's direction. The weaver flashed a cocky grin in response, amused at the peripheral twitter of anginids sporting chrome and static skins who found Shal's retro myth look, a red-collared dress shirt and PVC tie and skirt over a full-body fishnet suit, human and refreshing. Blue had clucked distastefully at the outfit the first time Shal coated it, knowing its creation was entirely for Morg's benefit and entertainment. Shalot swaggered confidently through the tables of groups lolzing or trollsing, finding a mallet with mirror-lensed metallic goggles for eyes surrounded by stringers. G-T-F-O, Shal said with a shooing motion of her fish-netted hand, drawing out each letter. The stringers, all with variations of goggle eyes and wire hair, indicative of their hero, were loom-savvy enough to scatter. Blue inside Shalot's head, informed her that some of the punks had screen-capped her with the cam function built in their eyes. The weaver let it pass. She had bigger code to compile. Crary, she murmured, sliding into the seat next to the trend-setting mallet, whose mirror lenses showed twin versions of herself trapped in circles on his plastic netting face. He grinned, teeth pure chrome, and had her hand in his, a long lime-green tongue licking her middle finger, sucking it into his mouth. A shiver ran down Shalot's spine, but she suppressed her customary desires. This ain't a booty call. Let's get a PM room. In moments, Crary had finger-drawn a box in the air in front of him that glowed as green as his tongue, sketching a few sigils within the frame to activate the PM window. He tabbed the window towards them until it merged into their forms. The rest of the room faded and blurred, the Ava still visible by faint silhouettes. Now no one else would be able to interact with or hear Crary and Shell's chat unless they were invited into the PM window themselves. What's your pleasure, babe? Shalot made a face at the antiquated term. You're such a fucking hipster sometimes, Crary. Look, I don't got much time. I need a race code hack. Crary leaned back from her in surprise. 404 what? Not an error, for real. I'm not saying I need someone to completely turn from a horn to a she or a green punk into full human camion, but say someone imed into Averona and ate the golden app as a changing. I know the app morphs the race code irreversibly into Averonian, but couldn't there be a wear with a temporary hack coded into it just to make her a changing again for a little while to remember what it was like? Crary was silent for a few clicks. Shalot wondered if he'd gone to sleep or if she could leave the window for a sec to grab a drink, but then he spoke in a voice surprisingly shaky. Who told you I was an Exian? Exian? The weaver's memory shifted. She remembered Morg's voice in a dark room with the sound of energy-laden rain drumming on the roof. Blue's voice wickied into Shal's mind hyperfast. An underground group of heretics proclaiming that neither humans nor fairy are autonomous, separate species or races. They believe that fairy and humans are responsible for each other's lives, co-creating their existence as if both are codes and sorcerers. Thus, this philosophy insists that changings are a special group of beings that should be cherished and fostered. Exians fight the social stigma of changings through the direct means of lobbying for beneficial and anti-murder laws offline and in cypherspace, and also through the illegal means of immigrating changings into the fair away from the harmful situations in Camelot. They call themselves Exians because they insist that their paradigm is the true, original teachings of the Sorcerer X.
I didn't know you were an Axian, Shell admitted, leaning over to rest a hand on Crary's. Her black fishnet on brown flesh contrasted with his white plastic net through metal skin. Nobody told me shit. I ain't gonna spyware on you. The round mirror eyes regarded hers. Shalot gave time for her words to sink in. She realized that Crary's stillness and quiet indicated that he was scared out of his fucking wits. It was clear he was not the legit kind of Exian. He must have Ware already set up to hack race codes. He must have Ware already set up to hack race codes, which helped him changings into cyberspace and find new homes. Crary pulled out a scarlet capsule with his free hand and placed it on the table. It'll last for a hundredth of a cycle or one hundred clicks. Just reverse the code so that instead of turning her into anything but a changing, it'll turn her back. An hour should be enough, and I'm pretty sure I can reverse it. Shao leaned in to kiss Crary lightly on the mouth. Remember, babe, the hipster term made Crary smile. If anyone fucks with you, the loom has your back. I'm in your debt. Pill firmly in hand, Shao poured it straight out of the PM window and through a green port in a mirrored slum court, opening out into an alley that reeked of the triple threat, waste come vomit. The outline of the neon green door faded quickly from the concrete of a building wall. Shao picked her way through fair and mech refuse with her black and red striped twenty-hole boots, looking for a more conventional cracked wooden door. Upon finding the entrance, she hopped up a flight of stairs and slipped into a dingy little room with a musty cot and a single table with uneven legs. A naked morgue peeled herself from the shadows, her towering frame pressing into Shalot in an embrace that left wet trails of want down the weavers in her thighs. Her lips were bruised against the warriors. You can see him in two hundred clicks, Shal said through gasps of air after Morgue pulled away. I scored a wear that can hack your race code for an hour. We just have to wait till the palace guards change up. That's usually when they let me slip through. Once I get you onto the floor where the delegation sleeps, you're on your own. The Camion ambassador usually comes with about six escorts, all with their own rooms. It shouldn't take you any time at all to find out which one is him. Morgue wrapped the weaver into another crushing hug. Ah, oh, you're dead, a bright love. I cannot tell you how grateful I am, but how does the wear change my race code? Shalot backed up. It'll temporarily reverse the Averonian app. You'll be, you'll look like a changing again. She held out her hand, displaying the red capsule. Morgue regarded it, her features twisted with an emotion halfway between loathing and awe. She said nothing as she plucked the pill from Shalot's palm and purposefully spoke no more of it for the next two hours. They reviewed the plan, made love with Shalot's clothes on, then without Shalot's clothes on, then reviewed the plan again. Once Shalot was re-clothed and Morg had slipped into a simple black sleeveless dress, did she once more look at the pill, which had ended up on the table. Abruptly, the warrior grabbed the capsule and swallowed it. Shalot watched, fascinated, as Morg's Ava began to morph, shrink, almost dissolve and reconstitute itself again. The harsh crags of her scarlet skin smoothed into a shade lighter than Shalot's, with a slight pinkish cast. The roiling mass of metallic hissing black wires deadened and thinned out into red-brown locks. The darkness that was her eyes shrank into points and became pupils encircled by the golden brown of dark mead and the white of milk. She no longer towered over the weaver, but could stare into her eyes, her frame filling out the dress differently as she was now wider in the hips and chest. You look human, Shalot gaped, running her hands over morgue-soft arms. The Averonian winced, glowering sourly, but she raised her hands up to Shal's eyes. Her nails were still completely black and sharpened slightly to points. The only telltale sign of fair blood. Shalot grinned and kissed each fingertip, alighting fires in Morg's eyes that she had to grudgingly quash. All right, let's get to the palace. It was late in the slum court and even later at Central, the sky already the deep indigo so typical of Mird. 
Porting from one site to the other was easy enough, and they raced through the asphalt and concrete streets leading up to the palace. There was a second where they both held their breaths, wondering if Crary's wear would hold up against the wards, but no alarm sounded and they continued towards the glass doors of the residential entrance. Hey, dear, Shaw giggled, walking into the lobby with Morgan toe as she held the other's hand firmly. Cheer was one of the youngest guards, but he'd worked the shift long enough to be on a name basis with the weaver. He was just coming in, one arm in the guard jacket, the other trying to find a sleeve. He had a long, thoughtful-looking turquoise face with wide, dark purple eyes prone to glazing in a daydream. The weaver was 90% sure the fair was still a virgin. She knew that if Jira was only coming in now, then the camp systems were still rebooting from the previous watch's procedural shutdown, so that all the data acquired during his shift could update the main processing unit of the palace. Shalot had less than a minute before the cams came back on. Jir got his arm through the other sleeve and bowed. Uh, what can I do, you two fine ladies, for tonight? Shalot grinned slyly. I just need to check one of the storage closets on the upper floors. I think the two of us left stuff behind earlier in the day. Uh, the upper floors? Jir's eyes got even wider, which Shalot had thought was impossible. They both knew the upper floors were largely abandoned and mostly used for sexual trysts. What did you two leave behind? Maybe I can go check for you? In unison, like they'd rehearsed, Morg pulled up the bottom of her dress and Shalot flipped her skirt, saying, Our, Our panties. panties! They rushed past the frozen guard, cackling all the while, and ran into an open elevator. As the doors were sliding shut, they heard a mumbled, Take as long as you need, ladies! That sent Shalot into another fit of giggles. We made it, Morg said wonderingly. I never thought it'd be this easy. Shalot winked as she pressed the button for the third floor. I am all about being easy for you, love. Morg shoved Shalot up against the elevator door and kissed her hungrily, running her hands through the weaver's purple hair and up her fish-netted thighs. When the elevator doors chimed open, Shal found herself being the one that had to gently push her lover away. It's time. Go meet your brother. They shared one last long stare, their brown, human-looking eyes filled with emotion unspoken, and then Morg slipped through the closing metal doors with a flutter of copper tresses. Shalot stood in the empty elevator, eyes closed, while the non-sentient wear patiently waited for her to press a button and tell it where to go. She didn't understand why she hadn't left yet. In her mind's eye, she saw a young, battered, and proud girl entering the mouth of a cave, swallowed up by darkness. For countless clicks, the image replayed itself over and over until her eyes flew open, finger-jabbing decisively at the plastic circle labeled Door Open on the elevator panel. Later on, Shalot would not be able to explain what possessed her to leave the elevator, whether it was niggling doubt, aching curiosity, or a lover's concern that propelled her out into the corridor. Blue-gray walls, black carpet, and numbered silver doors filled her sight, lit up by fluorescent tubular ceiling bulbs. She heard the voices with her enhanced sense of hearing, walking towards the one door that was ajar. She knew this door. She'd won points in the fucking game by sneaking in there with a bar trollop or two when the delegation wasn't visiting. It was the suite for the ambassador of Camelot, a night exec of the round table corpore. One of the voices belonged to Morg. The other had the timber of a human male that maybe had the tiniest hint of changing blood. They spoke low, but their words were heated, fierce, earnest. I can't believe you did all this to see me again, the man said. You know Camelot and Mir had proclaimed that Averona is anathema while this current animosity exists in the High Council. They're going to raise you to a sister for this stunt, won't they? I wish you were here just because you actually missed me. 
I do miss you, Art, Moore growled, but I also have a duty to Averona, to the fair folk that's my true heritage. I will not deny that I can make a good leader for the Averonian people because I believe in our cause. As long as that Exian exec is on the RTC board, Camelot is violating the Swordstone Pact. The pact is clear about what must be done. You must come with me to Averona with Excalibur. Tonight, if you can. Are you fucking crazy, Morg? Really go with you? And Exian saved you as a child. Why don't we just ask Quen to step down? She's never going to do that, and you know it. Like every time you've ever asked me, the answer hasn't changed, Morg. I cannot bring Excalibur to Averona. It's the only thing that keeps the dusk from destroying the last human stronghold in the world. And you want me to bring it because of some old prophecy policy bullshit? What about the loom? Would I ask you to take the fair's last hope away from the people? Don't worry about the loom. I've got it all under control. I will make sure policies fall to the letter if need be. What makes you think you can control the loom? Shalot's face, which had been slack with shock of this entire exchange, hardened into cold, mounting rage when she heard those last words. She whirled away from the door, the thread bursting from her back to engulf her in a shimmering cocoon of color. The weave wrapped around her face just in time to drown out her scream of rage before she faded offline. I don't presume to control such power, brother, Morg answered softly. The loom is one of the most beautiful, bravest people I know. Do not make an enemy of her like you are making an enemy of Averona. The loom is a person? Morg's eyes clouded over, her words stumbling as Shalot's curse emptied Morg's memories. The loom, there's much you don't know about our weapon against the dusk. Sister, I too have a duty, and that is to Camelot and my people. The Exians do not follow the historical teachings of the sorcerer. The RTC is not in violation of the Swordstone Pact. I will not go with you. Excalibur stays with me. Though I admire the Exians' actions, they claim their teachings are of the sorcerer. Thus they, and the RTC Exequen, are in violation of the Swordstone Pact. By being the official representative of the RTC and declaring your allegiance to the Exian cause, you have made an enemy of Averona. Moore couldn't keep the smugness out of her tone, filling the walls of her trap clothes. I will be raised to Sister Morg of the Warrior Guild, and when Sister Arho steps down as the ruling council member, it will be I that succeeds her. When next we meet, I will not be your sister, and you will not be my brother. I will be Averona, and you will be Camelot, and we will be at war. So be it, my sister. May your ambition and rank keep you warm at night. Morg stormed triumphantly out of Art's room as the effects of the red pill started to reverse. Her hair had begun to wave prehensilely, sparking, while the black in her pupils bled out to the rest of her eyes. By the time she charged out of the elevator into the main lobby, alarms were going off in all sections of the palace. Jeer, the night watch, had enough time to shout in confusion as a fully armored red Averonian warrior strode out of the residential doors, one arm raised to give the cams and gathering backup guards an obscene gesture with her hand before she was swallowed up by city streets in a port that would take her home. Comes the fall. Morg felt it, heart deep and razor screaming, nanoseconds before Shalott burst into the council chamber in an explosion of matte black and bright lightning blue. The vortex of wind the weaver's entrance created made hair and robes thrash as if they were trying to escape the loom's wrath. Unlike the first time Morg had felt it, where the entire island opened receptive, this time the arrival was a slash from the darkness, a ripping open without preamble or consideration.
Weaver's initiative. The punch Shalot landed across Morg's face did not send the latter sprawling backwards, as it had once done at the beginning of their duel so long ago. Morg's danger sense, usually unstable around the loom, managed to work in her favor this time. Her body was corded steel and she stared down to meet Shalot's furious brown-eyed gaze with an implacability that would become her trademark in future raids against Camelot. The sisters and their apprentices were screen caps still. Everything had happened too fast for them. The apprentices were kneeling and the sisters had had their heads bowed, one hand palm up towards Morg, who was the only one standing. To Morg's left was Maeve, who had just donned her crone robes and had clasped Morg's official black cloak of sisterhood around the warrior's shoulders. To Morg's right knelt Kate, her new apprentice. The torchlight threw everyone's features in sharp relief, expressions of terror, shock, and utter confusion etched from one visage to the next. Many of these sisters were newly risen as well, with fresh-faced apprentices trembling at their sides. Only sisters Carrot and Brig, the two left of the previous council, had unruffled looks. Morgan Shalott stayed trapped in tableau for a few tense seconds, the air sizzling and sparkling between them. Shalott, per usual, broke the silence first. You lied to me, she said softly, yet her voice boomed throughout the chamber. An orange-garbed apprentice clapped her hands to her ears, whimpering. Morg narrowed her eyes, her lips twisting in a sneer. Is that why you've been avoiding me? Because you think I lied? You were never looking for your brother. You'd already found him, a knight exec of the Round Table Corpore. You used me to get to him, to jeopardize Myrd and Camelot and further Averona's plots. Everyone knows the Weaver hates politics, Morg spat out. Won't take sides, too human for a fairy, too fairy for human, just drinks and fucks and kills. You're supposed to be our hero, Shalot. Well, I was going to make you one, damn it, so I had to lie a little bit. It was for the greater good. You will plunge our worlds into war, Shalot shouted. Don't give me your bullshit about the greater good when all this looks like to me is a fucking power play with no regard to people's lives. We're warriors, Shalot. What the fuck do you think you and I do? All we know is about power and war. What about love? Shalot whispered. I thought you loved me. For the first time, it looked like Morg had been hit. She staggered backwards slightly, her resolute mask cracking at the edges, black eyes widening. Everything that happened between us since I came here a year ago, was that all a lie too? Morg's rough, clawed fingers tenderly brushed Shalot's cheek, underneath an eye filled with unshed tears. Shalot, I... What a fuck you, Shalot slurred out, jerking away to turn her back to Morg. She spoke to the rest of the council, who were still watching the exchange intently. As far as I'm concerned, all of you were in on it from the very fucking beginning. You all used me, me, who came here a year ago for sanctuary, for rest. I'm not just a weapon, you fragfuck cunt faces. I'm a fucking person, too. That's just not cool. So go fuck yourselves. The Weaver is no longer a friend of Averona. I will never ever side with you in any dispute and any quarrel and anything that isn't related to the dusk. How's that for politics? Shalot whirled back to face Morg, her betrayed gaze branding itself into Morg's mind as her form blaze crackled and poured it away from Averona. As soon as the weaver vanished, a wailing filled the domed palace's council chamber as several apprentices and a few sisters broke out in utter despair 
at the loss of the loom's blessing. Silence, roared Morg. She raised her sword and held it over her head. I am the ruling sister of Averona as of this moment. Today it begins. Today it is Averona's age of the warrior. The sword slammed into the floor, cracking the black marble as the blade drove itself into stone. The chamber fell into quiet, all the leaders of Averona bowing their heads to their newest and highest sister. But Morg's look was far away, unseeing. She had long anticipated this day, and the elation she thought she'd feel was missing, filled with an unexpected heartache that she could not understand. She did know one thing, though, and so she twisted the bitterness and sorrow within her into light and heat until the chamber's air thickened in it nearly seared skin. Rage. Camelot will burn to the ground. Morg's battle cry made the island tremble, and every warrior took up its call until the trees shook with the sound of their voices. And so the scourging began. Eighteen years ago, after the sky cracks open, comes the fall. When the sentence finally withered and faded, the girl found herself lying in the great mother's arms, cradled against the golden robes. She nestled in deeper, so relieved for the silence that the knowledge and power still thrummed inside her, digging deep so she had the solace of forgetfulness for a little while. When the great mother spoke again, making the girl flinch involuntarily, it was with the voice, the voices of regular fairy. It did not hold creation and destruction in each sound. Child, you have come here to become one with me, with Averona, she murmured, stroking the girl's hair. This is a grave decision. Your destiny will be forever entwined with me, with this island. I want this, the girl whispered against the robes. I hate Camelot. I hate my human skin. Make me one of you, one of the fairy. I want to be fair. I will be a great warrior for you. You will indeed become a great warrior for me, child, the greatest warrior Averona has ever known. But know this, there will be blood on your hands, on your skin, the blood of humans most of all. There is much rage in your heart. It will propel you to greatness, almost a queen among your own people, but you will make heavy sacrifices. Three times you will be asked to choose between love and power. First for a brother, the second for a lover, and the third for a son. You cannot have both, only one or the other. If you choose love, you will sacrifice the power that might save your people or end the world so that it may be born anew. If you choose power, you will sacrifice love as a constant in your life. The girl cried bitter tears. This is a terrible future. Why can't I have both love and power to save? It is not writ in your destiny unless you turn back now to Camelot. There, as a human farther from the source, you have more choices. I can't go back, the girl said sadly. Averona is my hope and my true home. It sings in my blood as strongly as the dance of swords. It, you, you have given me a second chance at life. 
with a truth and purpose. If I must sacrifice love, what do I know of love? I'm a warrior. I do what I must to protect the people the way those rotten, stupid, hypocritical knights and squire boys of the round table corpore never could. Take me home, Averona. They were no longer in the subterranean labyrinth, but in an orchard surrounded by rows and rows of golden trees. The great mother held the girl's weak body in her lap while she pulled a golden apple down from a branch. Eat this, and you cannot ever go truly back, child. You will be mine. You will be Averonian. Without hesitation, the girl drew the shimmering fruit to her lips and bit into it. Her body spasmed, her form dissolving, but still she ate with lips that grew hard and teeth that grew jagged. Welcome, daughter Morg, she who will be the greatest warrior Averona has ever known, the scourge of Camelot. Welcome to Fairy. As Morg took the last bite from the golden apple, she saw that her hand was as red as the sky above her, the color of human blood. So ends Loom Memory Fragments Warp Time Weft Fairy <laughs>